Father God, all glory to you this morning. And we open up your word, Lord, that it would change us, that it would sink deeply within us and be embedded there. Lord, that your word would transform us. Be with Pastor Paul as he preaches the word, proclaims it boldly. In Jesus' precious name, amen. It is good to be back with the people of God. When it comes to salvation, that is being saved from the penalty of our sins and the wrath of God that is due them, there is a single word, at least in the context of the Reformation, that makes all the difference in the world. And between Catholics and Protestants, it matters. And it is the significant word alone. All the disputing boils down to this single word. Alone. Remove it, and almost all the division goes away. But then, too, does a commitment to Scripture alone, Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone, and the glory of God alone. Keep it, and you have two different Gospels. I am, and we should all be, committed to unity. But not unity at all costs. We can never build credible unity amongst the people of God apart from a solid and a biblical base. I do personally tire of the tension that I feel sometimes in churches and I feel between different denominations. Yet when that tension is a result of the gospel and that the gospel might be at stake, we should never give in and we should never compromise. We sometimes forget when we think about the Reformation, which is part of what we are reminding ourselves of these next four or five weeks, we sometimes forget that men and women risked, and some actually gave, their lives to defend this treasure, the gospel. We ought to be thankful for their precision and remain committed to defend the same. Because in the end of the day, if we as a church, and if you as a follower of Jesus Christ, do not get it right about the doctrines of the Bible and Christ, and salvation, we will never head in the right direction, no matter how innovative or energetic or zealous we might be. The Reformation is an amazing thing. It spanned two centuries. It boasts a diverse cast of characters from a variety of nations. Sometimes if you're reading about the Reformation, you will hear a phrase, which I won't say in Latin, but a phrase which describes the Reformation as a period of time in which light came after darkness. It's used to describe the transition from the middle or the dark ages to the period of the gospel light that exploded through the Reformation. The Reformation brought light to what had been significantly lost for a thousand years. From 500 A.D. to about 1500 A.D., the gospel had been buried this treasure which we so take for granted had been lost. The essentials of the Christian faith were unknown. And it was a time of incredible challenge for those who longed to be true to the Word to bring that treasure back into the light. As a result of the Reformation, nations were impacted. Germany, France, Britain, Switzerland, 
and even the world because the truths of the Reformation made their way to North America or the New World. The dawn of this light began as early as the 1140s with Peter Waldo. It continued through men and women and then landed again on a fellow named John Wycliffe. It was punctuated again a few hundred years later with the death of John Huss who was burnt at the stake for his commitment to the gospel and faith and grace alone. And finally, it was catalyzed in Martin Luther when he pasted or nailed, whichever you want to uh, believe, his 95 thesis on the church door in Wittenberg. If you want to have a little bit of an understanding of the breadth of the people involved in this Reformation, and it's just a, a touching of the surface, I commend to you a series that was put together by John Piper and podcast, Here I Stand. And for each day in October, they highlighted a man or a woman, Christian, non-Christian, rich, poor, king, pauper, and their contribution to the Reformation. What surprised me as I reflected and listened, and I think I listened to all 31 of them, was the diversity of men and women that God used to bring about His purposes. What even surprised me more was the sinfulness of those men and women that God used to bring about His purposes. And what also uh, uh, caught my attention was the fact that God even used those who had nothing to do with Him in significant ways to bring about His purposes in bringing His gospel to light. And so I commend that series to you, Here I Stand, by John Piper. The Reformation was a crisis moment. And in times of crisis, and if you've ever been through a crisis, you understand that the things that are peripheral, the things that are non-essential, they have a way of dropping off. And so what you focus on is only the issue of the crisis. And what mattered most in the time of the Reformation was the gospel, the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. That is what had been lost. That is what had been buried. That is what was being um, um, watered down. One person wrote, The church simply can't afford to forget the lesson of the Reformation about the supremacy of the gospel in everything that the church does. In looking back at the Reformation, they write, we remember what the church is all about. And we remember how easy it is for the church to lose its grip on the gospel. That phrase should stick in our hearts and minds because I would say that that is not only true of the church, it is true of us as individuals. How easy it is for us to lose our grip on the gospel. If Luther said it once, he said it hundreds of times. The church's true treasure is the gospel. If we lose the gospel, we might as well go our own way, do our own thing, and commit ourselves to some other cause or some other movement because faith in Christ loses its meaning and its importance. What was at the heart of the Reformation? Another person summed it up this way in a question. He says, this was what the Reformation was all about. How does a person get right with God? This should be an issue that is on the heart and mind of every single human being. I'll say more about this next week when we talk about through faith alone, but this is a significant question, was at the heart of what the Reformation was about. How does a person get right with God? I don't know if you've wrestled with that. My assumption is that many of you here have, and you've put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. My assumption is also, though, that there are some here today who are wrestling with that very question. 
as Barry and I talked about this particular series, we understood that there would be a bit of history in it, but we didn't really care about the history, although history matters. What we wanted to do more than anything else was to try and articulate again and in a fresh way the heart of the Bible, which is the Gospel. And how does one get right with God? We've been talking about five solas. I'll quickly give them to you. I think there's a slide with them. The first one is sola scriptura. It means scripture alone. What that says and what the Reformation fought for is that the Bible, and the Bible alone, is the sole and final authority in all matters of life and godliness. It is the final authority. There is nothing that trumps it. There is nothing that we need besides it. That the Bible and the Bible alone is our sole authority. Points two and three are sola gratia and sola fide, meaning faith alone and grace alone. And they remind us that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. It is not by works. We do not merit it. We do not deserve it. We come to Christ with empty hands. This is the great doctrine of, the, of justification in the Bible, that we are justified by grace alone through faith alone. That was the cornerstone of the Reformation. The fourth one is sola Christus, which means Christ alone. There is no other mediator between man and God. There is no other path to the Father but through Jesus Christ. There is no other way of salvation but in Christ and in Christ alone. And that our salvation is based solely and entirely on His work on the cross, on His perfect life of obedience before the Father, and it is through Him that we gain access to God. Through Christ alone. And then finally, as this song reminded us this morning, sola de gloria, to the glory of God alone. The only thanks or the only honor or the only praise and all of the praise and all of the glory for our salvation belongs to God and to God alone. And even though every one of these prepositional phrases has the word alone in them, they cannot stand alone. Because each one of those phrases modify the heart of Christianity, which is how do we become right before God? The biblical word is, how are we justified before God? How does God accept us as perfect? We find it through Scripture alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Each one of those five phrases that we're looking at modifies how is one justified or made right with God. First point that I want to talk about then is simply from Titus 2.11. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Titus is, I don't know, Barry would say, I don't know what he would say. He would say, turn this direction in your Bible and you'll find it. Just find Titus. Uh, it's a small book. It's a couple pages. Uh, one verse I want to start on with us this morning. Titus 2.11. And just make a couple simple comments on it. Titus 2.11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. 
Just walk with me, think with me through this verse for a couple moments. We learn something about God here. We learn something about the character of God. We learn something about how God is described. He is a gracious God. Yes, he is holy, he is just, he is righteous, he is loving, he is wise, he is wrathful towards sinners and sin. He is good, but he is a gracious God. It is an action, it is a disposition that acts in a certain way towards those who can't earn it, those who don't deserve it, those who don't merit it. It is a disposition of God towards humankind. So we learn that God is a gracious God. The second thing we learn here is that the grace of God is tangible. Have you ever tried to grasp a concept or an idea? And there's nothing physical that you can, you can use to get a handle on it. You just got to kind of work it around in your head and spin it around in your head and try and understand it. The grace of God has become tangible. For as Paul writes here to Titus, he says, The grace of God has appeared. That means it has been, become manifest. It has become visible. You can touch it. You can see it. You can hear it. You can feel it. You can experience. And the manifestation of the grace of God is nothing less than the appearance of Jesus Christ. If you want to know what the grace of God is and what it is like, look to Jesus Christ. Read the Gospels. Read about Jesus. Read about how Jesus talked with the sick. Read about how Jesus interacted with the sinners. Realize how Jesus dealt with the religious. Read about how Jesus dealt with the outcast. Read about how Jesus dealt with the ones struggling to understand life and issues. Look at how Jesus lived and you will understand and you will come to know what the grace of God is. It became visible and tangible in Jesus Christ. If you want to know what the grace of God looks like, look at Jesus and say, why did he come? Why did he live the way that he did? Why did he have to die? And you will see in Jesus Christ the manifestation or the appearing of the grace of God. Then this text also answers for us, why did God appear? And it's clear. He simply says, the grace of God appeared. Why? Bringing salvation for all people. That tells me that all people, not just a few, not just a, uh, you know, a certain race or a certain sex, but all people, all humanity, needed to be saved. And so the grace of God appeared, bringing salvation to all people. I want us to think that through a little bit. For any of us who might think that we are outside of the need of grace, this is only one verse, but this is a verse that is backed up by so much in Scripture, which tells us that every single human being is in trouble. That every human being is in need of help. And that the help comes to us in the person of Jesus Christ, who is an expression of the grace of God. And we need to be saved because we are all sinners by birth and by nature. And we are all sinners by act. And as a result, we are all under the wrath of God. Condemned to an eternal separation from God. I was thinking about this. Some of you have had the experience of sitting with a doctor who has had to tell you bad news. There is no easy way, I think, for doctors to do that. And the longer that I live, I think 
that has got to be one of the most difficult jobs they have. And I think of policemen and women who have to go and give bad news to a family. There is no easy way to do it. Some are eloquent, some stumble for their words, but nonetheless they have to get across the seriousness of the situation in which you find yourself. I find myself somewhat in that position now. Because there is bad news. And this is the news that we need to hear because it gives us the context of why the grace of God appeared bringing salvation to all men. And the problem is our sin. And the Bible describes sin as the rejection of God in our lives. It describes it as our rebellion against the laws that God has given to us both externally and His law written on our hearts. Sin is our refusal to submit to God's law. It is a refusal to look at all the good things that God has given us, which he says, have at it, and our choice of those things which God restricts from us, and we say, no, I want that. Sin is going outside of the boundaries that God has given to us sexually, materially, relationally, and even in what we worship. It is serious and it is deadly. The Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. See, we're troubled by this in our world today. I'm going to talk about this a little bit next week, but there's a vast difference between the culture of the Reformation and the culture of today. In the culture of the Reformation, almost everybody had an understanding of God and a fear of God, and they lived in the light of the, an awareness that there was a God and that He was a wrathful God and that their sins had created a separation between, between them and God. We live in a day and an age in which people don't care. We live in a day and age where people have so completely rejected God that He isn't even on their radar screen. They have been so deceived that they revel in their autonomy and they think they are all that matters and this world is all that matters and they have so pushed down and pushed out of their lives their guilty conscience, their sin, and awareness of God that so many people live without any fear of God whatsoever. And some of them would say, that's a good thing, I'm finally free. I think I would argue and I think the Bible would argue that that is itself a judgment of God that he has given you over and them over to their depraved kind of thinking. The Bible would say that kind of thinking is foolishness. What does God think about our sin? We could go through the Bible. We see it in the flood when God looked at the actions of mankind and they were continually in every possible way in thought and imagination indeed evil. And so what was God's response? He sent a flood that destroyed the whole earth. We see evidences again and again in the scripture of God's reaction to human rebellion and sin. He detests it. It's an abomination to him. It does not make its way into his, a present, or his presence. So offensive is sin that his wrath is stored up and poured out upon sin and sinners and that his justice will be delivered. But there's another problem. I think for some there's just a complete lack of awareness, who cares attitude to God and sin. But what if you do become aware of your sin? 
What happens if all of a sudden one day you begin to think about your actions and your conscience becomes awakened and you read a passage of scripture, you hear in random somebody speaking on the radio which you never thought you would ever turn to and all of a sudden something begins to happen in your heart. You begin to realize that your conscience is troubled. You begin to realize that maybe there is a God and that you are separated from Him. What answer do you give to yourself when all of a sudden your eyes begin to be open, when fear fills you and grips you and your conscience begins to condemn you? What solution do you work up in your own heart and in your own thinking to say, okay, well, this is what I need to do. This is how I'm going to amend my ways. This is how I'm going to make things right with this God. What do you do when you realize that not only are you a sinner, but all that you want to do is sin? When that it has enslaved you, and even though you might want to do something else, you can't do anything else because you're constrained by this thing that has got a hold of you. When nothing settles your conscience. I've been with people like that. I was with somebody like that this weekend. As they're getting close to the end of their life, they are so afraid. They are filled with fear. But they, and, and I don't get this, but for some reason God has not yet opened their eyes and I continue to pray that He will, but God has not opened their eyes to see that they can be forgiven. They can find peace. But they're not there yet and they are terrorized by the life they have lived and the prospect of dying. What do you do when the weight of biblical evidence begins to crush you? when the reality of your personal experience flashes in front of your eyes all the time, when all of your efforts to stop and to appease and to straighten up end in failure, and it becomes abundantly clear that you have no way out. This is where the Bible is so clear, and it says you cannot do anything to save yourself. This is what the Bible teaches from Genesis to Revelation. You cannot pull up your bootstraps. You cannot reform yourself. You cannot buy your way back into a relationship with God. You cannot pray your way back into a relationship with God. You cannot do enough religious things to get yourself right with God. You cannot do enough good things that will move you closer to God. In fact, this is how the Bible describes us. No one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not owned. known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That is an Old Testament collage of scriptures which describes the universal reality of every single human being. Luther commented about this in other texts. He says, I'm astounded that when Paul so often uses these comprehensive terms, all, none, not, never, without, I'm amazed how it has happened that in the face of these comprehensive terms and statements, others that are contrary, yes, contradictory to them, should have won acceptance. In other words, when Paul says none are righteous, how could anyone walk away with the notion that anyone could be capable of righteousness? 
And when Paul says no one seeks after God, how can anyone conclude that it is possible for somebody to seek after God by their own human will? Luther says the only way you could arrive at such a conclusion is if you were to introduce a new grammar and a new way of speaking. Just a little bit more of the bad news, how the Word of God describes us. We are dead in our sins. We are slaves to sin. We love the darkness rather than the light. We are enemies of God. We are hostile towards God. As a result, we are children of wrath. Jeremiah says that a man's heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. David says and writes that he was brought forth in iniquity. He was born in sin and he was conceived in sin. And because of this fallen state, the Bible says we are unable to please God. The only logical conclusion that we can make from the biblical evidence, and this is the bad news, is that apart from the grace of God, the soul is dead and our situation is hopeless. So what do we do? What are our options? Is my situation hopeless? For the grace of God appeared, bringing salvation to all people. The grace of God is God's undeserved gift of heaven. It's described in Ephesians chapter 2, 1 to 10, which I simply want to highlight one or two things for us this morning. It amazes me in that passage after Paul talks about our desperate situation. He says there twice in that text, in those verses, by grace you have been saved. One of the places in which he lands this phrase is right after he says, but you were dead in your sins and you have been made alive in Christ. By grace you have been saved. Why there? Why interrupt his whole flow of thought and put that phrase there? I think because that is where the contrast of our helpless situation, but the grace of God is most vividly made. If you are dead, you're dead. When you are dead physically, you don't respond to anything. You can't respond to anything. Your body has stopped to function. You can't hear, you can't see, you can't speak. You are dead. Loved ones, we have to take that analogy and put that into the spiritual world. Because the Bible tells us that apart from Christ, we are all dead in our sins and our trespasses. Spiritually dead is the same as physically dead. We cannot respond to God. We are not able to respond to God. We can't hear God because we are dead. And then he says, but by grace you are saved. What happens? God does this incredible work where through the work of Christ, which he accepted in his death and he proved his acceptance by his resurrection and the power of the Holy Spirit, he takes that work and he applies it to your life. He forgives your sins. He deals with all of your debt. He deals with all your punishment and he makes you alive. It is a gift of God's grace and God's grace alone. And Ephesians goes on to talk about it, that there is nothing that we can do. We don't deserve it. We don't merit it. We can't work towards it. And so our problem is that we are under the wrath of God. Our hope is that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And it's against this backdrop, as I said, the grace of God explodes. 
We are saved because of His mercy and His grace. It is not by our works. It is not by our money. It is not by our good living. Because we are unable to do anything that pleases Him. It is simply because of His astounding, lavish grace towards us. We can be fully accepted and counted legally right before God through faith by grace in Christ alone. The undeserved gift of heaven. As you think about grace, it is absolutely sovereign. It is God who gives it to whom he wills. I'm glad it's God's gift to give. And you know, you can pray, and you should pray, that God would give that gift to you if you've not received it. Say, God, I need this gift of grace. On behalf of your children or your spouse, you can pray, God, they need your gift of grace. It is entirely free. This is amazing. It is free. It would be absolutely astounding if at Christmas, which is a few months away, that you received a gift, a beautiful gift from somebody that you loved, and you said, wow, this is beautiful, but here, let, let me give you 30 bucks to it. Let me give you $500 to this. You know what? I, I appreciate this, but, you know, let me clean your house for, for, for the next year because this is really too... I can't just take this. Let me clean your house. Absurd, is it not? Really, what you do is you say, wow, thank you. You shouldn't have. That's more of my money than you should have spent. Um, but you receive it. Loved ones, this is how you receive the gift of God. With incredible gratitude and thanksgiving. Say, God, thank you for your gift of grace. Unmerited, undeserved, I know. But it has saved me. I want you to know that God's grace is lavishly given. It knows no boundaries. I have talked with people and they think they are beyond the forgiveness of God. And it's a lie of the devil when somebody gets to that point and they says, you know, just, I, I, I know I want God and I, I know that I need it, so I'm just going to work on this for the next six months and maybe I'll be acceptable at some point to Him. I want you to know that it doesn't matter what you have done, how long you have done it, how evil you may have been, however bad your sins might have been, or even how good you think you have been. God's grace is absolutely sufficient for your need. And that's just the start of it. It's boundless. It's infinite. His grace reaches to the heavens. His grace is unfailing. You need to know that He's not going to withdraw it. You need to know that at some point in your life, if you commit yourself to, to God and say, God, I need your salvation, that at some point it's going to run out of its power. At some point it's going to run out of its ability to keep you. It is eternally effectual. And it will never lose its power. Isn't there a song? Um, uh, I don't, I, it's in my head, and if I start singing it, you're all going to laugh at me again. I want you to know that about the grace of God. 
So that, why do we think about the grace of God alone? Well, it matters because that's what Scripture teaches, loved ones. I don't want you to listen to what anybody else tells you outside of the Scripture, any other book, any other person about how you get yourself right with God, if that's even possible, or how one does become right with God. Go to the Scriptures. Secondly, I think why grace alone matters is because we are so prone to pride. I made my little contribution. You know, I, I'm a pretty good person. I, I, I know I did some bad things, but, well, that person is really bad. And so, God, you know, thank you for saving me, but, I, I, yeah, I'm not so bad. But when you wrestle through the truth of grace alone, you recognize that apart from God, there's nothing that would have ever made it possible for you to get right with God. Charles Spurgeon, in, in one of his sermons, said this. He says, Grace is not of ourselves, but it is a gift of God. I ask anyone, to any saved one, to look back on his life in conversion and explain how it came about. You turned to Christ and believed on his name. These were your own acts and deeds. But what caused you to turn? What sacred force was it that turned you from sin to righteousness? Do you attribute this singular renewal to the existence of something better in you than has been yet discovered in your unconverted neighbor? No. You confess that you might have been what he now is if it had not been that there were a potent something that touched the spring of your will, enlightened your understanding, and guided you to the foot of the cross. Grace. Grace alone, the undeserved gift of heaven. The whole of life and salvation is rooted in God's boundless goodness and favor. We come to the Lord's table now. Loved ones, this table is the ultimate expression of the grace of God. Because in it, we come to it and we realize that everything necessary for our salvation has been accomplished in Christ Jesus. And you remember the words, if you're familiar with these, in the Gospels of Jesus' last words on the cross. What were they? It is finished. What is finished? The work of salvation. Everything necessary for all people to be back in a relationship with God was accomplished through Jesus Christ in his life and his death. And the proof that God accepted that was that God raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand. And so when we come to this table today, we are saying, I am saved by grace alone. If you still are here today and you feel the urge to do something, we're just built like this. If you feel the urge to do something, then there is something you can do. Accept God's gift of grace. If you're here today and you are becoming aware of your inability to connect with God and feel a fear and the reality that you are under God's wrath. Turn to him and say, God, I receive your gift of grace in Jesus Christ. The forgiveness of my sins. That in Christ, the punishment of my sins has been dealt with. The penalty of my sins has been paid. And through Christ, I am seen as perfect before you. If you want to do something, accept God's gift of grace. If you're here and you still want to do more, then I would say, give thanks. Let your 
lips become an expression of your heart and your mind which begin to understand that were it not for God's gift of grace alone, you would be eternally lost. And begin to speak praise to God. Begin to speak thanksgiving to God as you're driving to work every day this week. Just say, God, thank you that I am one of your children. God, thank you for Christ. God, thank you for your grace. If you still want something to do, be gracious to others as God has been gracious to you. We need more grace. Think about how God has acted towards you. Think about what God has done for you. Now, as those who have received his gift of grace, say, I want to be just like my heavenly Father. And I am now going to be gracious to others around me. Your spouse, your children, your workmates, your neighbors. Be gracious to them, even though in your eyes they may not deserve it. And you will be just like your dad. Father, we thank you for our time together today. Lord, I am thankful for men and women who 500 years ago fought for the truths that were taught 2,100 years ago and were contained in Scripture four and 5,000 years ago. These are eternal, everlasting truths. And because they fought and because they sought to clarify them today, we are farther ahead than they were. I thank you for this gift of grace, this gift of grace alone. Spirit of God, I ask that you would be merciful to some here today. Some who are apart from you. Some who have rejected God and have lived their own way. And I pray that grace will explode in their hearts and minds. And maybe today, for the first time, they will receive God's grace in Christ. And for the rest of us, Father, help us to reflect on the magnitude of this transaction. As we come to this table now, um, fill us with a sense of thanks because all that is necessary for our salvation has been accomplished in Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.